Larry set the tone very well for it in his sermonette on instant gratification and how that will lead a lot of people to accept the beast because they simply do not want their comfort level removed. They want to be fed and housed instantly, and they're used to it. Now, we have been studying various aspects of the prophecies of the end time now for quite some weeks, actually months, I guess it is now, and I want to hurry through some of it today and start coming to some conclusions, and some conclusions that may affect us, and I think very much will affect us. And what response does God expect of us? Now, I want to break off from where I was in Isaiah last week and consider Jeremiah a little bit today. I don't want to go through Jeremiah verse by verse. Well, I want to, but for sake of time, I'm going to summarize some things. The book of Jeremiah has to do with, at its opening, destruction that was quickly going to come upon Israel as a result of national and personal sin. Now, Jeremiah is an end-time book, and it has to do with Israel today, both physical and spiritual, and our national and church sins, and our personal sins. The warning here was that they would be destroyed and taken into captivity. And we know from several different places in Jeremiah that it talks about the latter days. So it is a latter day prophecy. didn't have to do just with them. Now the situation is a little different today than it was when this was first written. Different in this sense. Jerusalem was about to be destroyed, and they were about to go into the captivity of Babylon. Jeremiah discusses that it will be a long captivity But they will be there for 70 years, and he tells them, you're going to be there, there's no way of getting out of there, so settle down, build houses, do business, plant gardens, do those things which you would normally do, because it is a long captivity. Now, when Ezekiel wrote, 120 years more or less later, he talked of a time when the captivity was almost over, and that they were not to settle down and build houses. Now, it might be an apparent contradiction if you read Jeremiah, and he says, well, it's a long captivity, build houses. And then Ezekiel comes along and says, don't build houses. Because it's short. What you're dealing with is two different time frames. You're dealing with the beginning of a captivity, or the end of it, depending on which you were reading at the time. Now, we are in the situation where we have been in the clutches of Babylon now for about 70 years as a church. We have already gone through a long time. We have had houses. We have set up a society. We have lived within the Babylonian system. And I think that in this series we saw some pretty clear-cut evidence that the United States along with Britain, represent modern Babylon that is about to be now destroyed. So it's not like the beginning of Jeremiah where 
the captivity was about to occur and then did occur. And then Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 25 that they would be there 70 years. We are now approaching the end of the book of Jeremiah in terms of our captivity and the system going down. Because at the end of 70 years, Daniel in Babylon recognized by counting and by what Jeremiah had written previously that the 70 years of subservience to Babylon were about up. It was time for them to be released. Now, as we get toward the end of Jeremiah, we begin to see scriptures about getting out of Babylon. We will examine some of those today. I will not go through, as I said, the rest of the book, because that story is about a nation about to go into captivity. In this case, Babylon is about to go into captivity, and God's people are close to being released. I want to go for a moment to Ezekiel 23. We saw some hints several sermons back in Jeremiah 50 to 52, right in that neighborhood, that perhaps some of what will come down on America is an inside job. Part of it coming from the Assyrian and the coalition of nations against us, but part of it betrayal from within. A couple of hints there in that section of Jeremiah about that. I want to show you another one. This one is in Ezekiel 23. This is the analogy of two women, the daughters of one mother, uh, Ahola and Aholabah, which represented Israel and Judah the two separations of the tribe of Israel. He goes through and talks about how we have committed whoredoms with the Assyrians, with the Chaldeans, that they have been our lovers, that they were the ones that we have looked to for affection and good boy and instant gratification and religion and society and culture. We have intermingled with the nations, the Gentiles of this world. And we have become utterly and totally a Babylonian system and culture. And God hates that. He calls it spiritual adultery. He calls it idolatry, where we worship things and materialism and gratification and entertainment. And do not seek God except through lip service. So he talks about how in verse 12, we doted upon the Assyrians, we doted upon the Chaldeans in verse 14. The Babylonians came into our bed of love in verse 17. So we have made bed partners with Satan's society. We have lived in it. We've been part of it. We are still far too much part of it. And this is a prophecy about the end time, about Israel, and what is going to happen to Israel, okay? And these two women represent, or are types of, or code words for Israel and Judah. Notice down in verse 22. Therefore, Aholabah, thus says the eternal God, Behold, I will raise up your lovers against you, from whom your mind is alienated, and I will bring them against you on every side. 
Notice who he says will come against us. The Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekod and Shoah and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them, all of them desirable young men, captains and rulers, great lords and renowned, all of them riding upon horses or weapons of war, munitions of war, and they shall come against you with chariots, wagons and wheels, and with an assembly of people, which shall set against you buckler and shield and helmet round about, and I will set judgment before them, and they shall judge you according to their judgments. A cruel and fierce people, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Now, we just read a lot of scriptures in, a, in Isaiah showing that the Assyrian and a coalition of other peoples coming with them would destroy us. But here, he lumps it together with the Babylonians. And we are in a Babylonian system. We are ruled by a Babylonian government from Washington, D.C. If I am correct in saying that America and Britain are the leaders of Babylon and represent Babylon, not just as a society and a culture because Satan is truly the king of Babylon, as it says in Isaiah 14. But in the end time prophecies, there is one specific entity which the Bible defines as Babylon, which will be destroyed by the beast. She rides the beast at first, but then the beast destroys her. And America today is riding and controlling the UN and various other bodies, and is part and parcel with them behind the scenes to rule the world. And I believe that our own government is working behind the scenes to betray the American, Israelitish, and British people. That is why they are making pins here and there to hold people. It is why they are threatening that if the terrorist level goes up to red, martial law will be instituted, you will not be able to move, and if you cannot take care of yourself, they will put you in prison camps to take care of you. And this ties it together with that thought. It will come from within and from without. That scenario happened within the church. Most of the destruction came from where? From within. And they carried us without, back to Protestantism, back to Sunday, back to the Trinity, back to Christmas, back to Easter, things that Jeremiah clearly warns us about in chapter 10, Ezekiel does. So why would it be any different now? And really, even though it appeared to be from the inside, those men came in from the outside and wormed their way in as wolves in sheep's clothing to destroy us. That is happening on the national scene as well. And indeed the prophecies say that not only the Assyrian but the Edomite will be involved as well, our brother Esau. We are not to despise Esau, but we are to recognize that God has prophesied that Esau will hold the upper hand over Jacob at the end for a while. Obadiah talks about it, so does Genesis. 
Chapter 24, I covered at one point, I think, in the Minor Prophets series, but it draws the analogy of us being a pot on a fire that is boiling, and we are put in it piece by piece, and we make a very hot stew. And the scum of the fat in the fire comes to the top of the pot. Our sins boil to the top. What we are shows. It's a pretty gruesome story, but God says that is what we are. And then as you go on through the chapter, it talks about how Ezekiel could not get the word out. No one would listen. And even his wife died. And God said, don't even mourn, just go on about your business, get the word out. And he says that all this is going to happen, and then down in verse 26, he says that he escapes in that day shall come to you to cause you to hear it with your ears, and in that day shall your mouth be opened to him which is escaped, and you shall speak and be no more dumb, and you shall be assigned to them, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. People will not listen today. And when all this happens, and we have been meat in the pot, there will come a time that those who escape will be ready to listen to God. What a horrible thing is going to occur. Now let me turn to one more scripture back in Revelation in terms of this being an inside job, partially, to know that we'll be betrayed from within. Revelation 17, uh, verse 5, And upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And we showed how Ezekiel 16, uh, or in Ezekiel 16, God reckons Israel as a harlot and calls her a mother of harlots. Notice verse 6, And I saw the woman, this Babylon, the mother of harlots, which I believe is the United States, particularly in Britain as well. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered with great awe. Does this indicate that if our government is indeed Babylonian, that they will turn on the Israelite people and will martyr true Christians? I believe it's going to happen within this country. The beast will continue that because Satan hates all Christians. But I believe it will start right here in our own country. And I believe this is an indication of that. Now what of these prophecies, what do they mean to us? And what is the timing of this destruction that is to come? Let's notice just a couple of things. Isaiah 13. So we understand that this is at the end time and is soon to come upon our people and upon us if we're a part of it. Chapter 13 is a burden to Babylon. And... Uh, It talks about the destruction of Babylon in this chapter. Verse 6 gives you the timing. It wasn't something that occurred in Daniel's day when Darius the Mede came and destroyed ancient Babylon. 
Notice verse 6. How you, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened and is going forth, and the moon shall not cause their light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, in other words, rare, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth, shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Verse 19, In Babylon the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So the prophecies against Babylon are for the end time. Let's confirm that with what is most assuredly an end time book in Revelation 18. Revelation 18, verse 2. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. All nations have drunk of the, ra- the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Wine represents wealth and the ability to do what you wish to do. And that is what America and Britain have done. And we've been through all of these. But let's understand that Revelation was not written about ancient Babylon It's written about modern Babylon. So this is a now prophecy. All these prophecies are now prophecies. They don't have to do with what happened back then. That's a historical record. They have to do with today. Now with that preface, let's go to Jeremiah chapter 50. Because I want to show you here, and we went through chapters 50, 50, and uh, 51 and 52 in an earlier sermon in this series, but I want to begin to summarize and put some things together here today and let us see what God truly expects of us. I think I read verse 39 and 49 in that sermon, but it shall come to pass in the latter days that I will bring again the captivity of Elam, says the Eternal. So he's showing that these prophecies, whether it be to Elam or to Babylon or to whomever, are for the latter days. That he is writing about the latter days. So with that in mind, he opens chapter 50. And this is the word of the eternal against Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, by Jeremiah the prophet. So this is what Jeremiah writes about the end time Babylon, the latter days. But it is going to be taken, verse 2, and out of the north will come destruction against her. As we covered before, she was considered the land of the north because her physical geographical location was north and east of the Holy Land. But then so was Assyria, further north of the Tigris and Euphrates. He's going to make her land desolate. And I remind that we saw a lot of scriptures indicating First of all, that Israel is going to be made desolate at the end, and Babylon will be made desolate at the end. And I think we saw that Babylon has taken over Israel. It is completely a Babylonian, satanic culture that we live in. It has to be destroyed. 
that has to come out of Israel. Israel has to be destroyed and punished because we went to and accepted the Babylonian religion and the Babylonian culture. So there are many prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel about Israel being destroyed, and we have become as Gentiles. Ezekiel 16 says, you might as well be Gentiles. You look like them, you act like them, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. You're Babylonians. It's what you look like to me. And what we look like to God is all important, isn't it? Now, he says Babylon is going to be made desolate in the first three verses. Verse 4, in those days and in that time, says the Eternal, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah, together, going and weeping. They shall go and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Eternal in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. There's a time when I believe both the church, before Christ returns, will try to go to Zion. And there will be a time when God's kingdom is set up and the heavenly Jerusalem, Zion, is here. The physical Israel coming out of captivity will also seek Zion. I believe it will be a little different Zion. And maybe we can get into that at another time. Verse 6, my people has been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They've turned away on the mountains. They've gone from mountain to hill. They've forgotten their resting place. In terms of spiritual Israel, we have gone from a big government, a big organization, from mountain down to hill, down to little bitty groups. All that found them have devoured them, and their adversary said, we offend not because they have sinned against the eternal. In other words, we deserve what we're getting. And, unfortunately, that's true. They sinned against the eternal, the habitation of justice, even the Father, the hope of their, even the Lord, the hope of their fathers. Now he gives us some specific instruction here. Remove out of the midst of Babylon and go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be as the he-goats before the flock. He tells us, get out. Now, many would interpret that as only a spiritual and emotional removal. I do not, and I will show you some scriptures to indicate that. But there comes a time to quit being a sheep and be as the he-goats before the flock. I have a little emblem here. I wore a goat today. A gold goat. Could have worn a sheep, but I thought, well, maybe I better wear a goat pen. There comes a time... When you have to tell stubborn people God's message, whether it's popular or liked or not. Go out of the midst of Babylon. Verse 9, for 
Lo, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country, and they shall set themselves in array against her. From thence shall she be taken, their arrows shall be as of a mighty expert, a man, and none shall return in vain. And it will be a spoil. Now that, to me, is a physical captivity. The captivities that God speaks of for the end-time people of Israel are physical. When Ezekiel 5 speaks of a third dying in war with the sword, and a third in famine and pestilence, and a third being taken into captivity, it is a physical captivity. Our nation is going to be destroyed and taken captive physically. If we are in the middle of it, what will happen to us? Revelation 18.4 says, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. We come out spiritually, yes, that we be not partakers of her sins, but we come out physically so that we be not partakers of her plagues. Those plagues will be physical plagues. We will see friends and neighbors and relatives die, and we may die with them. Let's notice, uh, in connection with this chapter, uh, let's see, what is it? 51, verse 6. Chapter 51, verse 6. Flee out of the midst of Babylon, and deliver every man his soul... Be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the eternal's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense. And we've already read in this series how it is an end-time prophecy, as the next few verses show, and how she will fall, and that the nations have all drunk of the wine of her wrath. Notice verse 10. The eternal has brought forth our righteousness... Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. There is a time to come to Zion when? When we flee out of Babylon. What does that mean? It says virtually, let's see. It says the same thing in verse 28 of chapter 50. Virtually the same thing. The voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. Not just physical Israel, but the vengeance of God's temple, his church. So this is referring to the spiritual Israelite today, getting out of Babylon. Before she falls. And before we feel the vengeance of those who destroy our country, our countries. Now, what is the midst of Babylon? I think there's been some confusion on that. We're going to see in another scripture, I hope before I'm done today, that we also are to go to Babylon. 
And those who consider America itself the midst of Babylon don't know what to do with that one that says, go even to Babylon. Because they have defined America as the midst of Babylon. Let's see if God might define it a little differently. And let's put those other scriptures together with this before we're done. This may take two tapes today, I'm not sure yet. But I'd like to cover it all. Uh, let's go to Ezekiel, chapter 17. Now this is the chapter right after the famous or infamous chapter 16, where God says, you look like Gentiles to me, and calls us the great harlot, the great whore. He's speaking of Israel. So in God's definition, Israel and Judah are the great whore of the end time. Now let's notice Ezekiel 17, remembering that Herbert Armstrong told us the Bible is written to the church, and that all these prophecies have to do with the end time church, reviewing our little summary of Revelation, showing that physical Israel is not even a part, except being destroyed, of the stage that is set in the book of Revelation. Every chapter has to do with the church and the church against the world. Physical Israel is destroyed in terms of Babylon coming down. But it is between the church and the world. That's where the confrontation will be. Ultimately, the two witnesses against the beast and the false prophet and the world. And they will bring plagues as they please. And they will terrify the Assyrian with those plagues and be hated of all people. So it's the church and the world. It's not physical Israel. Physical Israel is going to captivity. Now, with that background, let's understand chapter 17. I did go through this in the Minor Prophets series, and many of you might remember it, but I think it's important to understand here particularly in terms of today's sermon and what the midst of Babylon is. The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, put forth a riddle and speak a parable unto the house of Israel. So this is doubly hard to understand. It is both a riddle and a parable. Christ spoke in parables, why? To make the meaning seem simple. He used simple agricultural parables, the Protestants tell you. But that's not what Christ said. He said, I read, speak in parables so they can't understand. So this being both a riddle and a parable makes it hard to understand. And I don't think anybody could really have understood it until these times we are facing today and what they've seen within spiritual Israel today. Okay, here it is. And say, thus says the eternal God, a great eagle with great wings. Now, in terms of a leader, we're talking about a great leader, a great eagle. With great wings, long wings. In other words, this would be a major-sized bird. We're not talking a sparrow here. We're talking about long wings, full of feathers, a lot of people. This one's not stripped nearly naked. It has a lot of people involved, which have different colors. 
All races of men were involved with this eagle. All the colors on earth came to Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. The cedar of Lebanon is something we had on the campus in Pasadena that Mr. Armstrong was very pleased with, I might say proud of. He spoke very often of the cedars of Lebanon on the Pasadena campus. I think they were there and had been planted there as a symbol, frankly, by whoever planted them before we ever had the campus. This cedar of Lebanon probably represented Worldwide Church of God in its earlier years. And it represented the best time there was in the end-time history of the church. It's represented, or the church here is represented as a tree, as it is in Zechariah 11, with trees being cut down and shepherds cut off. All right, he cropped off the top of his young twigs while it was still young, while it was barely started. He cropped off the top of his young twigs and carried it into a land of traffic. He set it in a city of merchants. Herbert Armstrong took the church when it was very small in Oregon, young and tender and barely getting started, and moved it to Los Angeles, a city of traffic, or a land of traffic, and a city of merchants. He took also of the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. What are the seed in the parables in the New Testament? Seeds that are sowed, some on stony ground, some on good ground, some in thorns, and so on. Seed represents people. So he took the people of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. That could be the campus in Pasadena. He placed it by great waters. That is a lot of good word and doctrine. Water is the word. And set it as a willow tree. A willow tree puts down its roots in good water and thrives where there's a lot of water. Remember Psalm 137, we've hung our harps on the willow trees. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. God refers to the church in Isaiah 5 as a vine. Christ refers to it in John 15 as a vine. Were the branches. It's referred to in Jeremiah 3 as a vine that produced the wrong kind of food or fruit. So it became a spreading vine. It spread all over the world, but it was of low stature. It had no great fame around the world, did it? Whose branches turned toward him. Where did the branches of worldwide turn? To Herbert Armstrong. We all looked to Herbert Armstrong, did we not? And the roots thereof were under him. It was rooted in Herbert Armstrong, the man. Now, it was rooted or builded by Christ through that man, but as a physical entity or leader, we looked to Herbert Armstrong. And that's where our roots were. 
So it became a vine, and brought forth branches, and shot forth sprigs. It had branch offices around the world, and little congregations, sprigs, around the country and around the world. There was also another great eagle with great wings and many feathers. Joe Koch followed Herbert Armstrong, and he was also a leader over this entire church. With great wings and many feathers, and behold, this vine did bend her roots toward him. For the most part, when he came into power, the church turned their roots to him. And it remained that way for some years until it began to turn away. So we turned our roots to him and shot forth her branches toward him. All the offices, all the people, the congregations around the world began to turn toward Joe Koch, That he might water it by the furrows of her plantation. So he was going to continue to water that plantation which had been planted before he ever came on the scene. It was planted in a good soil by great waters. Herbert Armstrong had planted it in good soil, good waters, good doctrine, good truth that it might bring forth branches, and that it might bear fruit, that it might be a goodly vine. Well, it had every opportunity. And in Isaiah 5, God says, I hedged it about, I gave it everything it needed, I took good care of it. What happened? All right, then verse 9. Say you, thus says the eternal God, shall it prosper? Is this thing which was planted properly and was supposed to be watered and fed by another man going to prosper? Shall he not pull up the roots thereof? Did Joe Tkach not pull up the roots of good doctrine planted by Herbert Armstrong? And cut off the fruit thereof, that it withered. The fruit of the Spirit began to depart, and the fruit of Satan's Spirit through the Trinity began to flourish, and it withered. It shall wither in all the leaves of her spring, even without great power or many people to pluck it up by the roots thereof. No great army came in against the worldwide church of God. It shrank and withered from within by a work of a few men who took it back to paganism and Protestantism. Verse 10, yes, behold, being planted, shall it prosper? Shall it not utterly wither when the east wind touches it? Chodokach came from Chicago to the east and ultimately from the Ukraine way east. So an east wind blew on it. It shall wither in the furrows where it grew. Didn't get moved, it withered right there in Pasadena and right there in Big Sandy, London, wherever else. Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, most people in the church rebelled against good word, good doctrine, good waters, our roots, and went into Protestantism with all its false doctrines. Say now to the rebellious house, Know you not what these things mean? Do you understand what has happened? 
Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon is come to Jerusalem. What's the code word for the church? Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, Jerusalem and Zion. The king of Babylon has come to Jerusalem and has taken the king thereof and the princes thereof and led them with him to Babylon. The Protestant world pulled them back and Joe Sr. led them there. Right back to Babylon. And I think Zechariah 5 fits very nicely here where the two unclean birds took the harvest in the basket, its mouth was shut, and it was carried back and set on its base in Babylon. Not God's base, but Babylon's base. Every doctrine they now believe is Babylonian. The nature of God, the Trinity, the Sabbath, clean and unclean, everything came from Babylon and has gone back to Babylon. And has taken of the king's seed and made a covenant with him and has taken an oath of him, he has also taken the mighty of the land. Joe Koch made a covenant, an agreement, took of the king's seed, Herbert Armstrong representing the king in this case, took an oath that he would lead us in the right direction, and he took many of the mighty of the land, the evangelists, the leaders, along with him. That the kingdom might be base, that it might not lift itself up, but that by keeping of his covenant it might stand. But he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors into Egypt. Even before Herbert Armstrong died, we were headed back into sinful Protestantism. When I was there, pastoring churches in Southern California in the early 70s. They tried to get me to go to Protestant colleges and get a master's degree. I only lacked a few credits, and I could have had a master's degree, because I went to some postgraduate classes in Pasadena. They were trying to get us all to do that, because they wanted us to upgrade our standing with the world. I refused to go. I wasn't going to Fuller's Seminary or any of the others. Sent his ambassadors to Egypt to learn the ways of sin and Protestantism. That they might give him horses and much people. The Tkachas thought if they went back to mainstream Protestantism, that it was the correct religion, say the name of the Lord and you shall be saved, instant gratification, and this church is going to grow like it never has before. That's what they envisioned, what they projected, what they prophesied, and what happened instead. So he sent the ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and much people. Shall he prosper? Were his projections correct? Shall he escape that does such things? Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? The covenant he made really with God, and certainly with Herbert Armstrong. As I live, says the eternal God, surely in the place where the king dwells that made him king, where Herbert Armstrong took the church and made this Tkach man king, 
whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, even with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. Herbert Armstrong died in the midst of Babylon. Where did he die? Los Angeles. Joe DeCoch died in the midst of Babylon, Los Angeles. What that tells me is that the cities of our country are the midst of Babylon. The country itself is not necessarily the midst of Babylon, but the middle of Babylon is those areas where Babylon and the system have its greatest influence. Is there any greater influence of Satan's society than Los Angeles and Hollywood? Than New York and Seattle and Miami and Houston? Babylon has a greater and stronger hold there than it does in South Dakota or western Kansas, or northern Arizona, or southern Wyoming. I think that this defines, scripturally, where the midst of Babylon is. So when he says, flee out of the midst of it, where does he tell you to go? I think the inference and implication is out of the cities. Get away from the middle of this system. But we're going to see other scriptures which impact this and help define it further. So keep that as a question perhaps in your mind until we get to those. Neither shall Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company make for him in the war by casting up mounts and building forts to cut off many persons. Egypt isn't going to be able to save. After his father died in the midst of Babylon, Joe Jr. took over in the midst of Babylon. And all Egypt, that is a type of sin, and the leaders of Egypt, false religion, were not able to deliver. And many people are being cut off from God as a result. He tells us, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to sin. And that's exactly what they're doing. Seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, when, lo, he had given his hand, shook hands, made a deal, and then broke it. And has done all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, as I live, surely my oath that he has despised and my covenant that he has broken, even it will I recompense upon his own head. He will be on the watch when it shrivels, shrinks, and dies. Goes back to Babylon. And I will spread my net upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, and will plead with him there for his trespass that he has trespassed against me. And all his fugitives with all his bands, shall fall by the sword. They're going down with Babylon and its system. A 
fall by the sword, go into captivity. And they that remain shall be scattered toward all winds. What has happened to those who did not accept the Babylonian Egyptian religion of the Dukachis? We have been scattered to the winds. And you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. God pronounced a scattering on the church, and it has occurred, and we better realize where it came from, that it was God who did it. Then he gives a very positive prophecy. Thus says the eternal God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar, and I will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one. He tells us he will give us tender pastors who will care for us instead of abusing and misusing us. And will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. God's going to set it on a hill that it cannot be hit. Now we're getting back to prophecy and away from history. But to explain the riddle and the parable, you have to understand that. We're between what God is about to do and what he has just done to the church. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. The two witnesses are going to stay within Israel. And the church is going to stay within Israel, which has become Babylon. We're Israelite people ruled over by Babylon, and we have become Babylonish in our habits and in what we do. But God is going to plant the remnant church in Israel. Not in Jordan, not in China, in Israel. And the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. God is going to bring a remnant from all over the world. In the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell, and all the trees of the field shall know. All the churches ultimately are going to know that I, the Eternal, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree. How are the two witnesses going to come? In sackcloth, in humility, not in great pride and prowess. I've exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, which is what we had in Worldwide at one time, and have made the dry tree to flourish. That which has been dry, that which has not been growing, that which has not been watered for some time is going to flourish and grow in the land and the heights of Israel. Christ told us that we're to be a light on a hill for all the world to see. And he's going to plant the church on the mountains of Israel, I think, both literally and physically, and certainly spiritually, and it will be the only light the world has until Christ returns. And it will blind their eyes and they will hate it. Well, I wanted to go through the whole thing, but I wanted us to get the main point here for today, that the midst of Babylon is the cities of Israel. And that's the setting for the end-time church. So he tells us to flee from the midst of Babylon. Let's go quickly to Revelation 18. Revelation 18. 
This is an end time setting, verse 2, and he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, has fallen, has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird or demons. That's what our society has become. So-called Israel, but God says we look like Gentiles to him. Then it talks about how Israel, as a Babylonian country, has influenced the world. Verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins. Don't live like her. Don't act like her. Don't look like her. And that you receive not of her plagues. Her sins have reached to God in heaven. We do not want to be like Babylon at all. We don't want to eat like her, walk like her, dress like her, paint up like her, whore around with the idols, spiritual idols of this world like her, keep her holidays, her holy days. We are not to look like her and act like her at all. And we are to get away from her. Now those are physical plagues that are coming from a spiritual God. And if you are in the midst of Babylon and don't come out of her, both spiritually and physically, you will partake of her plagues. And I will show you that it is a physical removal. Let's go to Zechariah 2. Zechariah 2. This is the setting of the end-time church and the two witnesses coming on the scene. And here is instruction. He talks in chapter 1 about how after 70 years, God is going to turn and bless. This ties together with Jeremiah 25 and Daniel, because Daniel is an end-time book if there ever is such a thing in the Bible. Sealed up until the end. And Daniel speaks of the 70 years. Now, they were delivered physically from Babylon at that time when Babylon fell and Darius the Mede came in. But it is an end-time prophecy having to do with the end-time church. Chapter 2, he's just been talking about how there are those horns which will come and destroy the church, and then carpenters will begin to put it back together. I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand, reminiscent of Revelation 11, 1 and 2, to measure the church. He said to me, measure Jerusalem. That is the church in this analogy, because it has to do with the end-time church. To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. What is left? How do you know how much is left? And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said to him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, for the multitude of men and cattle therein. There is to be a Jerusalem at the end, which is a series of villages without walls. And a multitude of men and cattle. Now, you can spiritualize men, I suppose, but it's hard to spiritualize cattle. God expects, at the end time, in the context of the end time church, villages will appear and have men and cattle in them. 
each man to have his own vine and fig tree. And at some point, those villages will have to be protected by God. He says, For I, says the Eternal, will be under a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. So the setting is a gathering of God's people into small villages somewhere. Now let's notice the continuing context, verse 6. Ho, ho, or attention please. Come forth and flee from the land of the north, says the Eternal. Babylon is often referred to in Scripture as the land of the north coming to destroy Jerusalem. We've seen a couple of scriptures today in Ezekiel 23 and in Isaiah, what was it, 16 or 17, 17, 6, I guess, to show that they will come to martyr God's church. That ties with Matthew 24, which says, Then will they deliver you up, afflict you, and kill you. So flee from this Babylon that we are in, says the Eternal. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, says the Eternal. The church is now scattered. And he says, come out from the land of the north. Get away from it. Deliver yourself, O Zion, the church, that dwells with the daughter of Babylon. Where is most of the church today? It is in America, Britain, Canada, Australia, the nations of Israel, most of it. And the preponderant majority is in the United States. Deliver yourself. Not God taking you to a place of safety, but deliver yourself. We're going to see that God expects something of us. I do not believe those villages without walls are the place of safety, by no stretch of the imagination. Those cities comprise the end-time Jerusalem, spiritually speaking, because physical Jerusalem in the Middle East is a big city with walls. And it will be there until the end of the tribulation, and the two witnesses will be killed in the streets thereof. So this is something different. It's villages without walls. And God says that we are to flee from the land of the north, specifically Babylon here, with whom we dwell. Now God says he is going to crop a tender twig from the top of the cedar and start a remnant church that he will make green. Isaiah 41 says he will plant seven trees in the wilderness. All seven will take hold of one man, Isaiah 4. God is going to put together a remnant amongst some villages that he will protect until they are destroyed and we flee to a place of safety. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, after the glory has he sent me to the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. What is the apple of his eye at the end? His faithful remnant, the daughters of Zion. Now we had Zion worldwide. Now we have many, many daughters of Zion, or lifeboats, or whatever you want, analogy you want to use. 
There's going to be one particular daughter of Zion that God picks out, one particular leader to whom all the remnant will then come. And it is going to be somewhere where villages without walls will be set up with men and cattle. And God says he will come and dwell in the midst. Verse 10. God is going to be involved. All right. There is an end-time prophecy that tells us, come out and dwell in villages without walls. At the end time, context, two witnesses about to come on the scene. Okay? Now let's go to Zephaniah 2. Zephaniah 2. Well, Zephaniah 1, for that matter. The book of Zephaniah is in order here in a book. And each book of this group is like a chapter. It's one book, really. Zephaniah is just before Haggai and Zechariah, which talk about the remnant of the church coming together with Zerubbabel and Joshua the two witnesses at the end. Now prior, just prior, to Haggai starting to come to pass, there is a warning here. Now let's understand the context for a moment. We're going to go to Micah here in a a little bit. Jonah is about a coward at the end who would not do his job until God made him do it. The book of Micah then talks about repentance and it talks about some things that need to be done. And we'll get to it uh, because the book of Nahum then follows Micah and talks about the, the Assyrian coming and destroying us. We didn't get to this when we were talking about the Assyrian and Isaiah. And for sake of time, I didn't. But it's right here in the context, a book about how the Assyrian will come against Israel and Spiritual Israel. Then we have the book of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk said, How long, O Lord? The Assyrian is coming. How long? And he's finally concluded, I'll sit on my watch and wait until it happens. And God will make me to jump and leap like the heart in the row and so on in the last verse. Then we come to Zephaniah. After we've all taken the posture of saying, I guess I don't know how long, I'll sit and wait until it happens. Then God gives us some clues in the book of Zephaniah. Here he says, I am going to utterly consume all things from off the land. God gives here a decree of destruction. And it's to the king of Judah, Josiah. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven, the fishes of the sea, and the stumbling blocks. Sounds like the day of the Lord to me, doesn't it to you? In time. This hasn't happened. Verse 4, I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place in the name of the Kimmerims with the priests. Idolatrous priests is who they are. And those who worship the host of heaven upon the housetops. That is Protestantism. And Catholicism. 
and so on and so forth. And those that are turned back from the eternal, verse 6, and those that have not sought the eternal nor inquired for him. There are a lot of people who have known the truth who are today not inquiring of God why what is happening is going on. Hold your peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. This gives you the setting of the book of Zephaniah. It didn't have anything to do with something way back then. It's just prior to the return of Christ and the day of the Lord. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has bid his guests. And he said that it will come down upon all those who have strange apparel. That is, those who do not have on white wedding garments. The end of verse 8. Then it turns to the financial system. God is going to destroy everything. Everything that this culture and society stands for. Verse 10, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Eternal, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate, and a howling from the second, and a great crashing from the hills. Do we talk about a stock market crash? A financial crash? God uses the same terminology, doesn't he? How do inhabitants of Maktesh, that was a market area of Jerusalem, similar to Wall Street today, or the city in London, where its financial transactions go on. Both represent modern Babylon in Israel. How do you have inhabitants of the financial districts? For all the merchant people are cut down. All they that bear silver are cut off. So the merchants of gold and silver and paper money, the financial system, in other words, is going to crash. Now, anybody with eyes to see and ears to hear can look at the circumstance today and know that this cannot be too far off. Days, weeks, months, two, three, four, five years can't be very long based on what we see happening to the euro and the dollar and other economies around the world and America losing market share around the world and supporting China with our imports and Japan and other places. And all we give them back in return for all the things we buy, the manufactured goods, basically is worthless government bonds worthless pieces of paper. How long will they trade automobiles for paper? Does it sound like a fair trade to you? It's going to crash. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their leaves. That's a winemaking term, a boating term, resting on their oars. Sitting in church, Warming a pew. They say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. What's going on doesn't matter really. Their goods shall become a booty and their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses but not inhabit them. We have had an incredible building boom the last few years in America, haven't we? Those houses are going to be taken away. We're not going to inhabit them much longer. And they shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. The great day of the Lord is near, it is near, and haste greatly, even the voice of the day of the eternal. Talks about a day of the trumpet in verse 16. 
Verse 18, Neither the silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. Some people are saying we ought to hedge our bets and turn our dollars in for gold. Well, that traditionally has worked. This time it won't work. Gold may last a little longer than bills, but not a whole lot longer, because the whole system is coming down, and you can't eat gold. Now, what is his instruction to his people on the cusp of this decree coming down? A decree of destruction in the day of the Lord and a decree of a financial crash of our system in Israel. Chapter 2, he begins to give us specific instruction. Gather yourselves together. together. The term here in the Hebrew is like gathering sticks for a fire. Now, when I go into the woods to build myself a bonfire, what do I do? I gather up sticks that I can find here, there, and everywhere. I don't bring the whole woods in and build a fire. It's a gathering of sticks. God's people need to gather themselves. God puts the onus on us. Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O nation, not desirable, or shameless, or unworthy, but possibly given grace. Before the decree bring forth, before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Eternal come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. He tells his people to gather themselves together before this decree of the day of the Lord, and the financial destruction actually hits. I will show you that this is speaking directly to us, not to Israel in general. Verse 3. Seek you the Lord, all you meek of the earth. Where, possibly, would you find meek on the earth? Only in God's church. The rest are proud. And those in the church are way too proud. But if there's a chance to find the meek of the earth, it would be those who are following Jesus Christ and his example, because he was the meekest who ever lived. Seek you the eternal, all you meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Who pays any attention to the judgments of God today on this earth? Only the church of God. Seek righteousness, seek meekness, it may be you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. God tells us to gather ourselves together. We are told many places, come out of her, my people. This is a physical gathering to get away from the eye of the storm that is coming. To gather ourselves like sticks before this hits. 
And if we are meek, and if we are righteous, maybe we will be hid. Now that fits perfectly with Matthew 24 and Luke 21, in which we are told, Pray that you be accounted worthy to escape. We are not worthy. We are not desirable. We have not been desirable. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. He says, seek meekness, seek righteousness, and maybe you will be hid. Now, some will be hid. But some of us may be worthy and some of us may be not. He will take one here and one there. He even says, now in chapter 3, he talks about, well, if you go on through the context here, he talks about the Assyrian again. And how he ultimately is going to destroy the Assyrian. The end of chapter 2. Then he talks about Jerusalem, the church, and her prophets being treacherous and lighthearted and polluting the sanctuary and building violence to the law, chapter 3, verse 4. And how he is angry and how he's going to tear it down. But he says in verse 11, In that day shall you not be ashamed for all your doings wherein you have transgressed against me, for then I will take away out of the midst of you them that rejoice in your pride, and you shall no more be haughty because of my government. My presence. Ezekiel says he will purge the rebels from among us. Here he says he will take out the haughty and the proud. I will also leave in the midst of you an afflicted and poor people. Or the New King James here says a meek and humble people. As a contrast to the proud and haughty who will be removed. And they shall trust in the name of the eternal. And then he goes on down and says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, verse 14, be glad. And then he tells us to work, and not all let our hands be slack. And then Haggai begins to talk about rebuilding the temple with the remnants who are faithful and humble and meek and righteous. That is the flow of what is about to happen in this land. Now let's go to Micah 4. I know I'm probably on the second tape by now, but I don't care. If you don't like this, get up and leave. Paul preached till midnight, and Eutychus fell out of the balcony. I don't do this often, but I want to finish this today. I want to get this whole message in today. Let's go to Micah. Chapter 4. This will add to what we saw in Jeremiah 50, 51, and 52, and what we should have seen in Isaiah 48, but I forgot it and went and slipped my back it. So let me keep my finger there and go back to Isaiah just for a moment. Isaiah 48. We didn't get to this when we were talking about Isaiah before we broke off in chapter 40. Now here he's talking about Jacob and Israel and how God is going to do some new things here at the end in verse 6. And hidden things that we did not know, they are created now and not from the beginning. And we won't be able to say, behold, I knew them. God is going to do some things here that will be a surprise to us all, whatever those are. Verse 14, all you assemble yourselves together and hear, listen, which among them has declared these things? The Lord has loved him. He will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans. Now, he's, he's addressing Jacob, Israel here, and he talks about how his arm will come down on the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. In other words, we're one and the same today. 
I, even I, verse 15, have spoken. Yes, I have called him, I have brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous. Come ye near to me, hear you this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was. There am I. And now the Lord God is speaking me. Isaiah is saying, I've been trying to tell you something for a long time. Now listen, would you? Thus says the Eternal, verse 17, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Who is being redeemed today? Only the church. We are the only ones being redeemed from the earth. Physical Israel will come up in the second resurrection, most of it, and be redeemed then. The only redemption that is occurring is with God's true spiritual Jews today. I am the Lord your God, which teaches you to profit, which leads you by the way that you should go. Oh, that you had hearkened to my commandments, then had your peace been as a river, and your righteousness as the waves of the sea. How it could have been different if our attitudes had been different. But look what has happened to us. We're the flotsam and jetsam on the sea today, not in peace Your seed also had been as the sand, and the offspring of your bowels like the gravel thereof. The church would have flourished and grown, but instead it became a low bush of low stature, even though it spread around the world, and then it came apart when the wrong vine keepers took over. It would have been that way. His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me, but the name of the worldwide church of God has been shut off and destroyed before God. There's the context. Now what does it say? Go ye forth of Babylon, flee you from the Chaldeans. Get away from this society, its culture, its people. Get away from it. With a voice of singing declare you, tell this, utter it even to the end of the earth. I hope this tape gets disseminated. Say you, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. God tells us, get out, get away from Babylon, and God will redeem you. And they thirsted not when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He claved the rock also, and the waters gushed out. That is both history and, I believe, a prophecy. God is going to take care of his people at the end. And he will have to, because we won't be able to take care of ourselves. But he's told us to get away. He's told us to get out. He's told us to flee the midst of Babylon. Now let's go to Micah and see if we can define more clearly how we are to gather, where we are to gather. Chapter 4, in the last days. This is a prophecy of the last days. The mountain of the house of the eternal shall be established in the top of the mountains. Didn't we read that God would take a tender twig from the top and place it on a mountain? Yes, he did. This fits that. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Doesn't Haggai say a remnant will be stirred up by God and come to the place that God places his name and where he is? And many people shall come and say, come and let us go to the government of the eternal, to the house of the God of Jacob. 
And we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. That is, the church, the faithful remnant. And they're going to quit fighting with one another and break their, turn their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Verse 4, But every man shall, he shall sit every man under his vine, under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. That ties with the agricultural setting we saw in Zechariah 2, a villages without walls and men and cattle there. This is going to come to pass. Now let's go on down. In that day, says the Eternal, will I assemble her that halts, or is lame, and I will gather, gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. A perfect description of the church today. Spiritually lame, driven away from worldwide by false shepherds. And God says, I have done this to my vineyard. In Isaiah 5, in Lamentations, and all through the prophecies. And I will make her that halted a remnant. He's going to call together a remnant. And her that was cast far off a strong people. And the Eternal shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. This last turning around of his remnant people is never going to fall away again. They will be with God all the way through the end time troubles and be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and rule with Christ forever. There will never be another turning away once this remnant comes together. Let's see it. And you, O watchman of the flock, that's what tower means, watchman. You, O watchman of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the church was Zion in Jerusalem, God is going to be dealing with a daughter of Zion. Proverbs 31 ties in. The fairest of them all. Unto you shall it come even the first dominion. The first rule, the first power that is restored to the church is going to come to the daughter of Zion whom God selects as the fairest that all the daughters will look to. Song of Songs, which we don't have time to go to here. The first dominion, that is the first rule, the first government, the first oversight of the faithful remnant. Even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So God is going to set his hand with a faithful remnant. And it's going to be one of the daughters. Now back to reality, verse 9. Now, at the present time, that is, in the middle of this prophecy, where we sit today, we are halt and lame and scattered. We are on the cusp of God delivering us. Now, why do you cry out aloud? Why do we whine and groan and moan and cry out? Is there no king in you? I guess that's the way we are. We have no leader. Herbert Armstrong died and what we got was wolves in sheep's clothing. Now we're scattered. There's no place we can look. There's no overall leader or king that we can look to. Is your counselor perished? 
He who counseled us to be ready, to get ready, that we're off the track, to get back on the track, and started with makeup and wrote a long article in it that some of us need to read. Is your counselor perished? Is he dead? For pains have taken you as a woman in travail. We've seen this analogy many times through the prophecies and even in Revelation 12. Be in pain. No instant gratification here. Be in pain. And labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, one of the daughters, like a woman in travail. For now shall you go, when you, when you are in this position, laboring to give birth to Christ in your character, laboring to be delivered from the mess that we're in, he says, now, when you are in this position, flat on your back, knees spread, pushing, pushing, and not accomplishing anything. When you find yourself in this position, now, shall you go forth out of the city, the midst of Babylon, if you please, and you shall dwell in the fields, out in the open spaces, if you look up the Hebrew, and you shall go even to Babylon. You leave the midst, the city, you go to the open spaces in Babylon. This is a physical removal from the city where it impacts the most and where when martial law does come, they will have greater control of you. Get away from that. Brethren, I submit to you that this means now, because we are travailing, and we are lame, and we are striving to be delivered. There the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. It is an instant gratification. As soon as you go there, you will not suddenly redeemed. But God says, when you find yourself in that position, leave the city, go to the field, even in Babylon, out of the midst of it, there you will be redeemed. There you will be delivered. In his time and in his way, when the time comes, there is where you will be delivered. I believe that means that that is where God is going to begin to gather his remnant people to a series of villages without walls with men and cattle. He expects us to get out of this society, out of this culture, and set up a godly society. That is why you and I, who are in this building today, are here. It is because we believe God when he says this. It will not be popular, it will not be liked, It is not what people want to do, but God says, do it. And you can talk to people, 
who will argue that this should not be done, and that isn't talking about now and today. All I can do is pass on what understanding I have to you and get the blood off my head. You are being warned. What you do about it, when you do about it, is entirely up to you. But there is a decree of destruction on our people and a decree of a financial crash. And he says, gather before it happens. I don't know when it is going to crash. It may be days, it may be weeks, it may be months, it may be a few years. But since I don't know when, if I'm going to do it before, I guess I'd better get busy, hadn't I? Because I know it's coming soon, and if I wait too late, I'm caught in it. But even if we do it, and we remain proud, haughty, and self-righteous, it will do us no good, because we may not be accounted worthy to escape when those villages without walls are surrounded and destroyed, which will happen. And those who are accounted worthy will go to a place of safety. Let's see a little more in Isaiah 52 that this has to be talking of a physical, not just a spiritual removal. I went through this in the Minor Prophets series. Starting with chapter 1, it talks, three, three warnings it gives. Awake! Awake! Wake up! Chapter 51, verse 9. And the timing is not the millennium. Verse 6 of chapter 51. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment. And they that dwell therein shall die in like manner, but my salvation shall be forever. So he's talking about the end of the age, when the earth is going to be fire and smoke, and men killed. And he's telling us right now, verse 7, Hearken to me, you that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. The church is the only ones that this could possibly be talking to. And he tells us to wake up. Tells us the same thing in Revelation 3. Wake up. Quit going around in your stupid spiritual dream that you're okay and that you're clothed because you're blind and naked. Wake up. Put on your garments of righteousness. Verse 17. Awake, awake. Stand up, O Jerusalem, which have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. That's the church. We have already drunk of the fury of God, and he's about to turn it loose physically on the nations. Wake up. Verse 18, ties with Micah 4. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Where do we have a leader we can all look to? Nowhere. There's no one that stands head and shoulders up that anyone will listen to. Let's go on to chapter 52. Awake! Wake up! Put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. 
We are that holy city. We are the heavenly Jerusalem. He says, get dressed, the wedding is near. This is end time. For henceforth there shall no more come to you the uncircumcised and the unclean. You'll be separated from everything that is unclean and uncircumcised spiritually. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise and sit up, O Jerusalem. Babylon has been walking on you. Sit up. Don't let it happen anymore. Loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. We have been in the captive clutches of Babylon now for 70 years. Or very near that. And God says, don't take it anymore. Sit up. Wake up. For thus says the Eternal, you've sold yourselves for nothing. We've been harlots to this world without price. Verse 7. How beautiful. Well, let's go to verse 6. Be sure again we know it's still talking about us. Verse 5. They that rule over them make them to howl. Haven't God's people been howling because of the ministry that has misused and abused them? Oh, yeah. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they that shall know in that day that I am he that does speak, behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says to Zion, your God reigns, your God is alive. He knows what he's doing. He's going to intervene. There will be those who will preach that. Your watchmen, first it says one, then it says two. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall turn again to Zion. I think this is talking of the two witnesses, and it says they will not be together until God begins to turn around and shine his face on Zion. Then they will both come together. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of the church. For the Eternal has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. God's going to turn it around. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. God is going to put forth an arm of his government before the entire world. He had arms strong to start with. Now there will be another arm. And what is the instruction? Verse 11. Depart you, depart you, go you out from thence. Touch no unclean thing. Reminiscent of Haggai, where it says the priest must make a difference between the clean and the unclean. And brethren, that's what I am trying to do here, is let us see that we are in an unclean world, an unclean society and culture, and we must quit touching it. Touch no unclean thing. Go you out of the midst of her. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. Of all people on this earth, we must be clean because we do bear God's vessels. We are his vessels. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. Just before the witnesses appear, just before the turnaround, he says, get out. Don't go with taste. 
Don't go by flight. Not like you're going to a place of safety. Have an organized plan, but get out. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now he says, don't go hate or by flight. That cannot mean just coming out spiritually and emotionally from this world. Because we are always counseled in Scripture to get quickly away from sin. Quickly get away from sin. (coughs) On a spiritual level. So this has to be a physical getting away because it takes a little planning, but who knows when the window of opportunity is going to close. Who knows when the financial crash will occur and this nation, the peoples of Israel and the other nations of Israel will go into captivity because of our national and personal individual sins. I do not know exactly when it is going to happen. Chapter 53, verse 1, Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Eternal revealed? How many people do you think would believe this sermon today? If it were published to the whole church? Very, very few. They think they are doing fine. They don't need to do anything until the word comes to jump on a plane and go to Petra or somewhere to the place of safety. They won't read this. They will not understand it. And if you give them a tape of it, they'll laugh in your face. Because I'm nuts. They think. We were in Micah 4. He tells us, when we're under these conditions, to leave the cities, go dwell in the field, even within Babylon, not in the midst of it anymore. Verse 11, Now also many peoples are gathered against you that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion an eye of contempt, an eye bent on destruction. They're going to try to destroy God's people. Matthew 24, martyrdom will come. 12, though, but they know not the thoughts of the eternal, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. God is going to gather his scattered remnant to the two witnesses, as for Haggai and Zechariah, And the world doesn't know that he's going to protect them. They think they can kill them, and Satan figures he can. And as soon as he's kicked down, as per Revelation 12, who will he come after but the church? Verse 13, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. This is repeated in Isaiah 41, I believe it is. For I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves brass, and you shall beat in pieces many people, 
and I will consecrate their gain, the eternal, and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. God is going to back his church, he is going to back his witnesses, and they will go out and thresh this world. And this world will hate them, because they can bring plagues whenever they wish. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. Barnes note says this is speaking of Judah. And I think it's speaking of spiritual Judah, the church. He has laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Both a reference to Christ and a reference to the end time church. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you be little among the thousands of Judah... Now, there are millions of Jews on the earth. This is speaking of spiritual Judah, of which there are only thousands. And among the thousands, this Bethlehem Ephrata is a very small group. Bethlehem Ephrata is right outside the suburb, suburbs of modern-day Jerusalem. Very small towns in the suburbs. Though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall he come forth to me that is to be ruler in Israel, the church. Whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. A direct prophecy of Jesus Christ who was born in Bethlehem, but also he who will come as a type of Christ at the end to help God's people. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travails has brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. So God is going to put together a righteous remnant under a daughter of Zion and the leadership for God's end time work will come from a small group, just like Jesus Christ himself did. He wasn't born with great fanfare in Jerusalem. He was born in a small suburb in a manger. And God's work at the end is going to start very small, just like that. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Eternal, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. It's speaking to Israel, it's speaking to the church, and says the Assyrian is coming into our land. And where are we going to be? In Jordan. We're going to be in our land. I believe the place of safety is in our land, in the mountains and deserts and wilderness and in the rocks. And when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men, not just the two witnesses, but the Assyrian and the Babylonians, as Ezekiel 23 says, are coming into our land to destroy the people including us. And there will be no strength except that which God gives his church. 
will raise seven shepherds and eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod, and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land, and when he treads within our borders. That is what is going to happen. Now I want to add one more scripture to this. I know your mind can only absorb what your rear end can endure, but I'm getting close to the end of this. Nehemiah is a setting where they were rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. And there's a prayer here in chapter 9 about how God had delivered his people in the past and how we will do it again. And Ezra and Nehemiah are the basis of the books of Haggai and Zechariah, which are definitely end-time prophecies, and this story augments that, and I think there is prophecy here in Nehemiah as well. <clears throat> it talks about the kings of Assyria in Nehemiah 9 and verse 32, and how we have done wickedly, and how we're going to make a deal, a covenant with God, the end of chapter 38. Because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal to it. And then it gives a list of those that are sealed. It includes Anatoth down there in verse 22 for one small village. Verse 28. And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims. Now this is speaking of people who left Babylon, who physically got out when the 70 years was ended. And bear in mind that when God released the Jews from Babylon, most stayed there. Only a small remnant came out. I know for a fact that when God releases his end-time spiritual Jews from this world, only a few, a remnant, will come out. Most will stay and go into the tribulation with the rest of physical Israel. That's what the scriptures say over and over and over again. Middle of verse 28. All they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding. Most people in the church today do not have knowledge and understanding, and they will not separate themselves. A small remnant will. They clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God, our Lord, and his judgments and his statutes. Here is a people willing to separate themselves from the rest of the world and swear an oath, a vow before God, to live according to his ways. And that we would not give our daughters to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. Or as Paul said it, become not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not marry outside of spiritual Judah. And if the people of the land bring goods or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, they'll buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and then we would leave the seventh year in the exaction of every debt, restoring the land Sabbath and the jubilee. 
within a Babylonish culture. You have to separate yourselves in order to have a godly community living by all the laws of God. Also, we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. And it goes on and on about how we would obey and tithe and do all the things that God wants us to do, including the new moon, and we need to certainly consider that. So the example here in Nehemiah, when you come out of Babylon, is to set up a godly society, to get away from the midst of Babylon, dwell in the field within Babylon, and live according to God's ways under every vine and fig tree, and live according to God's will and his ways. Now that is what we are endeavoring to do right here on this piece of property we have purchased. I read these scriptures several years ago and looked and looked to find a place and it was difficult to do. And then a door opened, and we were virtually given this land and this place. Now, this may or not be, may not be that Jerusalem without walls. I'm not saying it is. I am saying that it is not in the midst of Babylon, that it is an open place out in the field. We found ourselves travailing and lame and spiritually bereft. And we simply began to gather ourselves before the crash came. This is an opportunity to fulfill some of those scriptures and to try to live as we can before God. It may or may not have any prophetic significance, except that we're simply reading the scriptures that we have just read today and saying, let's do what God tells us to do. And leave ourselves in his hands, and if we do our part to gather ourselves and bring ourselves and deliver ourselves, as Zechariah 2 says, and do our part, then God will deliver us. We have power. Are we still on the phone line? Okay. Well, at least I didn't kick the bucket, just the cord. All right, let's go to Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yes, we wept when we remembered Zion. We were afloat out here in Babylon now. And we weep over what was in the church of God and what no longer is. We hung our harps on the willows in the midst thereof. I mean, how can you sing songs of joy when you're in the captivity of Babylon? Life is hard for us, isn't it? Maybe not physically in particular, but emotionally and spiritually we under, are under such great pressure that it is unbelievable. We're being told that we ought to be righteous and holy and depart from the unclean. And it is against every bit of our nature to do that. We like to cling to that which we have become accustomed to. We like the culture and the society and the clothing and the entertainment and the foods and the things of this society. A lot of people are so perverted they actually like 
the cities which God hates. So it's hard to come out of them, isn't it? The spiritual pressure is immense. People are giving up right and left throughout the entire church. We hung our harps on the willows. Weren't even going to play them. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. Sing and dance, you church people. Sing and dance, you Jews. Tell us about God. In sarcasm. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. You're in captivity. We have you by the throat. Sing for us. Tell us about your God. Bow down before the image, the beast. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Our land has become strange, hasn't it? They didn't take us to Babylon this time. They brought Babylon to us and we swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. From the Masonic layout of Washington, D.C. to the betrayal that is going on there today as they live under the shadow of Washington's penis. And we think it's good. 550 feet, 5 feet high, the occult image to Nimrod. How are we going to sing God's song in this land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her skill or her cunning. If we forget God and his church and his people now, what do we have? If I do not remember you, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy, do we prefer God and his church and his society and his culture, his ways above the ways of this world, or do we not? By their fruits you will know them. Not by their lips, but by their fruits. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Destroy it, raise it even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewards you as you have served us. The Assyrian and the coalition is going to destroy Babylon before our very eyes. Are we going to be in the middle of it? Or will we get out of it? Happy shall he be that takes and dashes your little ones against the stones. Our children, our babies are going to be crushed their heads against the cement walls that we have built in this land. It will do no good to approach God and his church and what God is doing as the leaders approached John the Baptist. And he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Because they came to save their ornery hides, but they did not repent 
of the spiritual pride and self-righteousness and haughtiness that motivated them. It doesn't do any good to try to save our physical hide if we do not live spiritually and have on holy, righteous garments and become ready for the wedding supper. Brethren, what I am telling you today is not just to save you from the physical wrath to come. It is to follow these instructions physically, but to seek righteousness, to seek meekness, to seek humility, and pray with all our heart that we be delivered after we have done our part and that we be accounted worthy ultimately to escape what is coming on this world and in an even greater sense to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye when Jesus Christ comes because we are clean.